Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy analyst team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the editor, Peter White. We've got with us our solar analyst, Andries Vontanar, all the way from Australia. Hello there. And our hydrogen and aviation specialist, um, Bogdan Evermuta. Hello. Our EV and oil analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And our product manager, Simon Thompson. Hi there. On today's podcast, we're going to talk... We're going to talk a little bit about our new SAF aviation forecast. Um, we'll also take another little peek into perovskites and ask when they might really make a difference. And we'll look at um, some innovation we came across this week in fast charging and see if that makes any difference at all to how you design an EV. Uh, and then we'll see what our product manager Simon has made of this week's issue. But first, let's start with Bogdan and ask just why is SAF turning out to be something of a fantasy. So, yeah, we had a look at um, how the aviation industry plans to decarbonize. And um, given that it didn't show up at the Paris 2015 meeting, um, it's to no surprise that they uh, they don't actually have a solid plan in mind. Uh, so SAF is sustainable aviation fuel. is meant to be a drop-in substitute for a jet A kerosene. Um, but it's only made from agricultural waste, forest residue, uh, municipal waste. There's, there's a few different pathways. Um, and the thing about the, the, the approved pathways is that some of those pathways have been approved in probably almost almost about 10 years ago. Uh, and it took the industry this long to actually start cranking it up. And uh, they're probably scrambling now because they realize they're running out of time. At least the airlines do. And so they start looking at alternatives like hydrogen or electric aviation in general. When, when do you think the pressure will be applied to the airlines? I mean, at the moment, the airlines have got their, their caps out saying, oh, poor us, we had lockdown and you wouldn't let anyone fly. We were almost all bankrupt. Um, you couldn't possibly ask us to do anything right now. When, when can we possibly ask them to do something? Well, I think the pressure is already mounting. Um, I quoted um, the vice president of strategy of Thin Air, commercial airline operator from Finland, and um, she publicly stated that um, her airline is trying to buy more SAF and it can't because there isn't enough. Nobody's making enough, and uh, they start looking at, at uh, alternatives. So I think the pressure is already mounting. So, so they're not making enough because they aren't getting enough requests, or or because. No money's being put into it from the airline. What, what's, why is, I mean, I would have thought that if SAF was the answer, um, well, for a start, it was probably a very stupid question, but if SAF is the answer, um, I mean, well, I think we reliably believe that there's enough agricultural waste in the world to supply it, and all that agricultural waste is just going to rot and, and, and give off methane. So we might as well do something with it. So why hasn't they done anything with it? That's true. I think when the aviation industry decided that SAF will be a viable path of decarbonization, everybody turned around and said, okay, that's great. We'll use SAF. And then a couple of years later, then airlines got together again and started looking for, for orders because they realized that they need to start acting in order to meet um, carbon emission targets for 2050. And they realized there's nothing concrete. There's not a concrete plan. The concrete plan seems to be carbon offsets. Yes. That's just, that's just uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take, it takes two seconds to say, and that's it, your problem goes away. Until someone like the EU 
starts saying, oh, only uh, zero carbon planes can land at this airport or, or anything coming to the EU will have to pay a carbon border tax if, it, if it's a plane that isn't, uh, isn't, isn't zero carbon. So uh, and when do we think some stuff like that's going to start to happen? We think it's going to start happening in the 2030s and even maybe see some, some signs of it in the late 2020s. Well, the, 2020, the, the carbon border tax comes in in 2025. I mean, that's going to surely have an effect on air, airlines. Yes, and there's, uh, there's a few uh, airline or small airline operators. Uh, there's a Danish one called DAT, D-A-T, and they've already publicly stated that by 2030 that their entire fleet of short-haul Place are going to be powered by hydrogen, be zero emissions. Zero Avia in the US are uh, working towards retrofitting a really small, I think it's a nine-seat uh, Cessna aircraft. It's a start. Yeah, retrofit that as a start with uh, an electric motor hydrogen tank for commercial passenger and cargo aviation. And the certification is aimed to be cleared by 2025. So we're going to see signs of um, electric zero, zero emission aviation from as soon as probably 2026, 2027, but obviously at a very small scale. The thrust of this report then is the airline industry has no plan. It just keeps saying SAF to anyone that asks. Yes. Uh, as a result, SAF isn't getting enough funding, won't take off, and hydrogen will overtake it. I've spoiled yes. the ending now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but really, if you if you need to have a detailed landmark future landscape um, on the the shape of the aviation industry, you need to. I think this is the only one that exists. This is uh, a forecast from Rethink Energy. You go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. You click the energy button. You click forecast and data, and there it is. You can buy this report as of later today and it will give you what's really going to happen in the aviation industry based on real pricing data discussions with insiders discussions with people who, who understand uh, where SAF is supposed to be at this stage and just last comment how much um, you, you did a, a list of all the SAF contracts that are signed how much of that how much airline fuel would that make up so all the public orders at the moment that I could find online amount to about um, 1 billion gallons by 2030. And, and uh, given there's 100 billion gallons used every year, yes, that's, that's 1%. 1%. 1% by 2030. Good effort for the, the aviation industry. Um, you know, uh, really strange that... Um, that we we they think they're the exception. They think no, 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 no. people want to fly so much. Um, it's, it's it's a little known thing that every airport in um, uh, not in Europe, but but most airports in Europe, certainly every airport in the UK, is asking for extra capacity because so many new um, uh, flights uh, want to be commissioned. People want to fly, and. They just assume, oh, in that case, we don't have to worry about decarbonisation. I really think that's that they're being strange if they don't take it seriously. Time will tell. In fact, there was, was that quote this week from uh, the CEO of Chevron. He said that people will be using fossil fuels five years from now, ten years from now. 
20 years from now, it, they will dominate the energy landscape. And I just don't think he realises that electric cars exist and that um, if you don't actually have the car to justify the bulk of the petroleum, then you don't have the cost base to pull it out of the ground. Um, and we know that in 2035, no, there won't be any in China, there won't be any in Europe. What, what, what drugs is he on? You know, I'm on some of what he's drinking. We, <laughs> and we really have to worry. Uh, looking at the article from Greta Thunberg, it's, it's basically saying it's time to ignore politicians because politicians aren't going to solve this problem because they don't really understand what's happening in the world right now. Has anyone got any idea what 2.2 degrees, because, I mean, they're, they're saying, I think the DMV are saying, yeah, yeah, fossil fuels through 2050, yeah, yeah. And they're saying 2.2 degrees is the most likely outcome of heating. At 2.2 degrees, we're going to have an extra 35 to 60 days of extreme heat every year or extreme cold, or a flooding in every country, in every year. I mean, I don't think they understand what a 2.2 warming situation looks like. Because by then, how can you still be driving cars? You won't be able to drive cars because you'll be living on a floodplain, or you won't be able to afford food. Or, you, you know, I mean, it'll be too hot to go out. They just don't get it. They, they think, yeah, it's only one degree, won't cause any harm. They aren't thinking it through. Let's move on. Let's move on. We had another um, interview. Uh, it's with Calix um, Andres, uh, a little peek into Perovskites. And I think it gave us a little sample of where we where we sit now with Perovskites and when when they might make a difference. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah. So so Calix is um, one of these companies, at this point probably the most advanced and relevant one, uh, that is looking to sell perovskite modules that are coated onto glass that can then be used in in the normal manner of glass in a silicon solar module so then you have a four terminal hybrid solar architecture which is two 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 modules instead of one uh, i i think of it as a module level tandem which is probably horribly uh, incorrect on a technical level to call it that but that's how i think of it two layers of pv um, both working perhaps less efficiently each, but collectively between them, more efficiently than one, one layer. Yeah, uh, there, there will be some, you know, it won't be a perfect additive efficiency addition with the 24% the from the silicon and the 16% from the perovskite, because some of the light will be the same wavelength that both materials can absorb. Some, a lot isn't, which is pretty important. Uh, so, so really the idea here is, um, I, I think, I think the number that um, the numbers that Calix suggested to me, although I'm sure all of these are subject to change, is that the perovskite module by itself that they're able to make is 16% efficient. Um, but actually, what they can do is they can produce a silicon perovskite tandem module that's up to 27% efficient. So that's at least 3% higher than a, a top-end silicon mainstream module today. And in terms of price, in terms of price, because you're only adding perovskite to it, you're not adding a significant amount of cost to that. Yeah, and and, and think about it. If you're if you're managing to increase, uh, and this is this is probably this should be an understatement of where they can get pretty soon, um, certainly by the end of the decade. If you're increasing the total output from twenty four percent efficient to twenty seven percent efficient, then you're creating one eighth more power. 
But module cost is only about a third of an installation's cost. So you can afford, if you're producing one-eighth more power, you can afford to make the entire installation cost one-eighth more. But you're only going to be increasing the module cost. So that means you can increase, if, because module cost is a third, you can increase the module cost by perhaps three-eighths. So will they increase module cost by three-eighths? Uh, well, I'm pretty confident it will be less than that. Now, I didn't actually go into much detail with Kellux about what the actual costs will be because, of course... Their customers will set the prices, yeah, yeah. And and everything will scale up. And, in fact, the, the, the costs of perovskite manufacturing is pretty interesting. I went into a little bit of uh, descriptive detail in the article. Um, for, for silicon, a lot of the cost is simply raw materials and electricity. So that's all marginal. It, it scales... Direct in a linear way, you make twice as much. Many of the costs are now twice as big for electricity to purify the silicon and, and to buy the to buy the silicon powder and the industrial silicon to, to put into that process. And not to mention things like glass and so on. Um, now the Kalux tandem, I, I don't think it requires any more glass or, or anything else. It, it just requires perovskite. Well, that's not an expensive raw material. Um, it doesn't require much electricity to you, certainly not in comparison to silicon. So actually, the highest production costs will be wages for these uh, technologists and scientists and researchers and the production line equipment. But of course, production line equipment is a kind of different cost, uh, even with maintenance and wear and tear. It's a little bit different from having a, a marginal cost that's per unit. Um, so I, I, I think the costs will, will... Well, clearly these costs have a, a huge potential to go down. Uh, as the operation scale up? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to summarise here. Um, we know they have a relationship with Reliance Industries of India. We, we know that they, they've offered to buy as much as they can make, um, we, we, and they've taken a stake. Um, we know that if you're installing this in India, it will be cheap. So we can assume that this is going to produce a lot more electricity for a similar or only marginally increased cost, and that... Um, this will start to have an impact, and it's strange. It's from a, a you know, we, we expected, we all followed Oxford PV. Um, we're still waiting to hear what Oxford PV's new strategy is. Um, they've kept uh, stony silence on that for well over a year. So, um, oh, and we haven't heard anything out of any Chinese manufacturer on Perovskite um, recently. We, we know that, that well, everyone's experimenting. Well, we've been hearing that, oh, we're, we're building a 100 megawatt production line, a pilot production line, but that's okay, kind of... But that's a, a good start, yeah. So, so um, it could be that you know a European, a, a Canadian, and American Western company uh, will get a head start in uh, Perovskite, and it could be that we start to see uh, so see that in the next year or two. So, if anybody sees a Calix installation, tell us about it and tell us how much more energy it produces. If anyone hears anything about Oxford PV's new? Uh, Perovskite strategy, call, call Andrews and let him know about it. We'll tell the world. Um, it's Perovskite's not dead, uh, merely sleeping. Hmm. I, I think okay. this this kind of what I think of as a module level tandem, which is different to Oxford PV's um, thing that they want to pursue, which I call a cell level tandem. Uh, they call it a, it's properly termed a monolithic tandem. Um, it's it's just quite straightforward. It's just it's just adding Perovskite module to the to the glass that you put in a silicon module anyway. Uh, you only need to match the voltages. You don't need to do current matching. You don't need to do anything terribly complex. It doesn't matter if it's not a revolutionary improvement. Well, it, it kind of is a revolutionary improvement, actually. It doesn't matter if it's not um, twice as efficient as a, a, as a normal silicon module because it's, you know, 
it's only a marginal increase. And, and so I think this is the second um, commercialized practical case with perovskites. We already saw the first one from um, from Seller Technologies with their little devices. Um, and uh, but but Mr. Graybeal, the CEO of Kalux, he was talking about all kinds of uh, examples. He even mentioned uh, satellites, which surprised me a, a, rather a lot. All right. So, I mean, it is, it is true that throughout history, you get these minor little uh, improvements uh, and you end up sort of heading off in a new direction for a, a small pragmatic change. Paint the glass with perovskite. Whoops. You know, we've just we've just changed the economics of the whole solar industry. Um, it's such a good idea that it can't it can't work. But um, but if it does work, um, we'll be seeing more from that soon. And that leads us on to. Another story uh, today, uh, which I did myself, um, and it really was um, uh, an article in Nature magazine where the same kind of change has happened to a lithium-ion battery. If you put a couple of uh, nickel um, substrates into a uh, layered battery uh, and use it to heat the battery up to 65 degrees, you can uh, protect it from the damage that's done from it in fast chargers, and you can use fast chargers, and you can uh, you can charge your car in ten minutes, um, says the um, uh, Pennsylvania State University, uh, working with uh, the National Engineering Laboratory in the states and the Beijing Institute for Technology in China. So um, nobody's going to be able to stop China from having that technology since they contributed to it. And um, what what was really interesting about this was. The underlying message was you don't get it. If you make a, if you have confidence that you can charge in ten minutes, then you don't have range anxiety. If you don't have range anxiety, you can put half the battery in a car and and charge half the price. So instead of forty thousand dollars being the cheapest electric vehicle in America, twenty thousand dollars would be, and that could happen overnight. Um, to put this into manufacture would only take one to two years. So that potentially could happen overnight. Um, it caused a bit of a fuss. Everyone reported on it. They knew it was important, but what they tended to do was just regurgitate the numbers. But it, it's really interesting that, that um, the approach they've taken, it's just pragmatism. You know, the, the, What can we do that might change this slightly? Oh, we can heat it up. That's a strange idea. Um, won't we need to cool it down again? Um, and they kind of put some... Um, uh, just use use air going through the radiator uh, being directed into the battery to cool it down again. So they've thought through all the aspects of it, and they've changed they've changed it to a safer electrolyte um, and um, reduce the amount of lithium hexafluorophosphate that's in it. But that and a few other changes all put together in this paper, and it does stand out as they haven't done much new, but it might be a revolution, and that's. That's just, um, it's just great when you can have revolutions based on just thinking through the problem. <laughs> so, Evan, you've got, what, what, what have you seen in the, uh, in the issue that's, um, that's caught your eye? Well, there, there was something rather strange. Uh, GE, um, the makers of onshore wind turbines, is closing down or laying off 20% of U.S. workers. Um, uh, and I thought that was odd because I thought as all systems go uh, in in the U.S. But since the IRA and the, the green energy deal, so why are uh, they they say GE says it's because of the lack of or weak demand? That that can't be true, can it? Uh, so, I, I think 
weak dem demand when you when you add it to the fact that um, the materials cost more and you can't get them to the factory gates in time means that your actual output has gone down and you don't want to have people standing around doing nothing. Um, I think that that's happened in quite a lot of industries. Uh, I, I, I don't want to be triumphalist about this, but um, uh, a great friend of mine uh, works for Gartner uh, and I have had this argument about GE. I said it, it was in trouble and it was a dodgy company and he shouldn't put any money in it. And he said, oh, Larry Culp is going to save it. He's a great turnaround artist. And ever since then, I send him a little um, one-liner saying, oh, another disaster has befallen GE. The share price has gone down again. So, um, you know, what they should have done, GE should have um, perhaps separated out its renewable energy uh, company, uh, its turbine manufacturer, um, and, and uh, kept it away from its gas turbine business and its aircraft engines and its um, and, it, and its medical segment. And in the end, that is what he's doing. But I'm not sure if there will be much left of GE when, when, when uh, Culp is finished with it. Do you think that um, old companies in, in the US, in, in the light of, um, uh, you know, the, the green energy deal in the US, do you, do you think it's just new companies that are uh, taking advantage of that? Is there any uh, room? I think it's the exact opposite. No, I think it's the exact opposite. I think that GE will lay off 20% of its US workers and still get more money out of the IRA funding than anyone else. Uh, you know, so in, in the end, the American government pays money to lay off some work, American workers. Um, that's not... Perhaps that's unfair. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but, it is, but it is large companies that apply for those things because there's a lot of tick boxes on all of those things and you have to be able to... Um, have a, um, a a transparent supply chain and you have to have it automated and you have to be able to tickle the boxes and sign the forms to, to get that money. It tends to be the bigger companies that get it. So, um, yeah, I'm not a great believer in things like um, the, the um, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I'm not really a great believer in governments solving um, the global warming. I'm about as much of a believer as Greta Thunberg is that politicians will solve global global warming. Um, I think their followers, they do what their voters tell them. Um, and by the time <laughs> it's 2.2 degrees of warming, their voters will be telling them, help. Uh, you know, we can't even run a business. Someone switched off the internet and um, and my, you know, and I am either drowning burning to death, freezing, um, you know, can't eat. I mean, that's people, um, people have got to understand uh, what these numbers mean. And um, I don't think anyone in government does. Any, any other um, uh, short items that you said? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, British faults. You, you were the one who drove past the factory that's in, uh, in right, Blythe or Thumberland. And you said, yes, I did. Going on there. So, so, so we asked them. And they said, "Oh well, we we've already told everyone it's going to be six months delayed," and it and it turned out that they previously told them it'd be two years delayed. So in fact, what they really meant was it'd be two and a half years delayed. And what they really mean is they don't have enough money, and if they don't get two hundred million, the whole thing is in jeopardy. So they want to raise two hundred million, but if not, they'll sell the business. Uh, and 
and they're in talks with people right now. British national newspapers are all over it. Um, when we looked at the amount of uh, total factory um, output, this you know the number of gigafactories that will still be operating, if one this size goes under or changes hands, it makes no difference to the total. Um, the total European output might be 1% less. Um, there's so much money going into this market. Whether a purely UK effort can uh, uh, come into being, uh, we'll, we'll find out. Apparently talking to uh, Tata uh, Motors, who in fact own Jaguar Land Rover, who in fact were going to be, I believe, one of British Vault's customers. So, um, yes, the... Um, uh, you found you saw that in the northeast. You drove past it, and that's typical go look see journalism. Um, shows points you towards the story. Uh, one other one that's really got everyone's backs up is um, the fact that the British government asked everybody um, if they, because they had um, uh, a court telling them that they they, they, uh, they aren't doing enough uh, to meet the zero. Um, zero emissions commitment, um, they asked a load of financial companies uh, what are they doing about it, and BlackRock and Vanguard have both told the UK government they have no plans to stop funding fossil fuel plants, whereas it was it was two to three years ago that BlackRock put out a statement saying we will stop funding fossil fuel plants, and their CEO or their chairman uh, has been quoted and gone to green uh, washing uh, events where he tells everybody that they don't invest in fossil fuels. Funny, it only takes a war to get them back in. Another U-turn. <laughs> Another U-turn. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we get to the stage where in Britain we'd rather have the American government than our own. And, um, that's not often true. We'd rather have the French government even than our own. Um, okay, so um, you can read all the other stories in this week's issue. It is a free issue. We, we encourage people to go there, www.rethinkresearch.biz. On the homepage, click the energy button, click weekly analysis, read the stories for free. If anything in there tells you that we know what we're talking about, you should be going to forecast and data and buying a subscription to all of the forecasts um, that we bring out uh, every year. Uh, and it's an annual subscription. It costs $4,600. And if you want to know more about that, uh, email simon at rethinkresearch.biz, and I'm sure he'll be delighted to tell you. With that, we're going to bring the podcast to an end. It's it's, um, it's brief, brief one this week um, because we're all so busy. Okay, bye for now.